We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVergilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Scared money don't make money, you know? Merry Christmas and welcome to a holiday edition of the Gator Nation Football Podcast presented by BetUS. Hi, I'm Alan Williams. I'm here with James D. Virgilio. Of course, we're going to get you all caught up on some Gator news, what happened in the early signing day, and a few other things of note to discuss. How you doing over there, buddy? I'm doing great. I can't wait to have this podcast episode. We said last week, Alan, that we would come back on the air if interesting things happened. We thought that that might have been a possibility. We didn't know what the interesting would have meant, and many interesting things did indeed happen. We will give you our reaction to those items on this podcast, this Christmas, Hanukkah, holiday, New Year's, all wrapped in one themed podcast. As always, if you like this content, follow us on social media, sub to the YouTube channel for film reviews, and become a patron on Patreon where you can drop us a dono. Thanks again to B-Red and Bama Shane for all of their time and effort in this 2021 season. It has been a great season, Alan, not for the Florida Gators on the field, but I think for this podcast and hopefully for all of our listeners that have enjoyed the content, there was so much to break down this year. We have so much to be thankful for as we enter into the new year. And we will do our best on this podcast to make sense of what has been going on in the past week. Alan, we did have some new patrons, some new donos. Uh, Charles Pascal comes in with a medium dono. Welcome, welcome in, Charles. Yeah, welcome to the family welcome there, Charles. Welcome to the fam. David Chris comes in with an annual large dono, which is really a hundo bomb and then some. So David Chris, thanks for that. And then a level up from Kevin Weisgerber coming in from a medium to a large. Well done. Tis the season to increase the size of your dono. And still sitting on the throne is the big homie. Still there. Still there. Lots of great things have been happening. His reign has seen the end of one era, the beginning of another, and seemingly a lot of excitement after what happened Last week, Alan, read off our Dono legends. Would love to. All right, start with Little Payton. Excuse me, Lil Payton. Get that right. Constantine, Double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stash Me, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark, Jassic, Mark Jackson, Tim Honderick, James Truitt, Custer Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Cooper and Kylie Craig, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Emery, and Craig Scarado. 
Okay, on Wednesday of last week, the early signing day, which is essentially the real signing day now in college football, uh, I would say not a lot of anticipation for it around Gator Nation, but a few fun things happened. Some really cool things happened, especially if you're someone who's a real recruit, Nick, which you and I are not. We try to follow it to keep ourselves up to date on what's happening in the program and what's going on. But we don't follow it day to day, hour by hour, like some people will love to. But we do want to talk about the significant things that did happen. But before we get into like who signed and everything else that happened, James, give me your kind of overall, I guess, feelings on signing day itself. Like, what was that like? Yeah, it was a grand slam. Whatever analogy you want to use, sports, pick your favorite sports metaphor. It was that. You know, Alan, you mentioned that we're not recruitniks, which we're not in the standpoint of individual players' names. I am a self-described stargazer and and someone who wants to load up on top 100 talent. We've given the ratio of what you need to win. We've talked a lot about that in the past. So I follow that part in the macro intently. That is the lifeblood to win. You and I have talked about that, Alan. And this was step one. Billy Napier had prepared us and we prepared you on this podcast last week for not a lot of early signing day activity because that's what happened at Louisiana. And also because Napier himself said, hey, don't expect probably a lot of activity. Now, that's wise words from a coach who, Alan, I want I want to really hammer this part home, didn't have a relationship with any of the surprise signings he landed on early signing day. And that is what makes what Napier did, in my opinion, so incredibly remarkable. So much so that many recruiting sites and national media organizations listed Florida as a top five winner on the day for early signing day. Something that would have been unthinkable or unimaginable given the way things felt and even the way Napier was preparing us. So for me, this was a 10 out of 10 early signing day period indicating that Napier does in fact have that recruiting plan. He is somebody with a process and a system and it's already yielded results. Of course, it is very early, but again, in just 10 days, in just 10 days, he's accomplished what we're going to lay out here in detail in a few minutes. Remarkable stuff. Yeah, I think I have my expectations very low, partly because of what Napier said, but also because of just where Florida was at coming into it. Not seemingly trending for anybody or even anybody on the board. Um, Yeah, and a lot of really good surprises, right? So let's start with the headline. Five-star safety, Kamari Wilson, who's from IMG Academy. I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, comes in. I, I don't know that anybody had been talking about him to Florida. Most people had him going to Georgia. So that's one thing we can say right off the bat that uh, went to head head to head for a guy with a guy that you know for all that we can understand Georgia really wanted beat Georgia for that prospect. Uh, Shamar James, which might be a familiar name, um, top one hundred linebacker who had been in the class decommitted. Comes back in. He's a top 60 guy, really. I mean, he's way up there. Um, Very close to a five-star kind of player. Uh, Then Devin Moore, who's 
in the 300s, still a four-star guy. Was uh, committed to Notre Dame at some point. They land him. And those were the three big names that popped for the Gators that day. Um, also, you know, in this class, a top 100 guy, Chris McCallan, who very weirdly committed in between Mullen getting fired and Napier getting hired. So a guy who obviously really wanted to be a Florida Gator no matter what, which is a guy you kind of want in your class if he's going to be that that committed no matter what. So, um, yeah, the IMG thing is funny too. Let me just go ahead and mention that. If you're not familiar with IMG Academy, it's basically like a sports factory down in South Florida where it's a, a kind of like a athletic prep school. I mean, it is a high school technically, but it's focuses on athletics essentially. People from all over the country come there. Florida had really, I think maybe had signed one IMG recruit the entire time. It's kind of this IMG curse. Florida never gets these guys. And Napier comes in and gets them. Now, reason that it's hard for Florida to, it's not the default school for these guys. They're not, most of them are not Floridians. They're not, they're from Ohio and they come down to IMG for a year or two. They're not necessarily going to be like, oh, a Florida lean just because they go to high school here. But they are top players in the country. And they were not coming to Florida. And in Billy Napier's first few days on the job, changes that trend. So just landing those three guys alone is super impressive. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, Florida has never, Alan, never signed a five-star from IMG. Oh, never. I think only one guy total. And Dan Mullen signed one, which is a four-star. But that's, that's unreal. And again, like you mentioned, it is a national, you know, prep school. I grew up in Sarasota, Florida. I went to Riverview High School. And growing up, IMG, when I was a kid, was really synonymous with Boletary Tennis Academy. And then they began to have this idea of creating the Boletary of all sports, which became IMG, which it is now. But it's, you know, 30 minutes from where I grew up. Very familiar with it. The fact that Florida had been unable to create any kind of traction there is surprising. And the fact that Billy Napier came in on day one and basically said that I'm targeting the state of Florida and I'm also targeting IMG, which tells you if all the best recruits are there, we need to develop relationships to the point to where if these guys are undecided, Florida is right in their backyard. They need to come for a visit. They need to be here. They need to get involved. And obviously he did that. It should be a a boon for your school, not like a disadvantage. It's it's certainly not a disadvantage. And it has been, which again, makes no sense. So you're landing, you're landing the number one safety who was pegged obviously for Georgia. So you're stealing one from Georgia head to head recruiting battle early on 10 days in just really good stuff. Really, really good stuff. Florida's three top 100 signing day additions. Now these were not Alabama, AM, et cetera, right? They had a bunch of other guys already committed. These are the on that day, who do you commit to? Florida's three top 100 tied for the most in the country alongside AM and Alabama. Now, AM is in the midst of a historically good class. A reason why I've said all along, I think Jimbo Fisher can win at AM. There's a reason why he passed this three year test. There's a reason why he did well at Florida State. But that puts Florida ranked 51st right now, Allen, which is nothing to look at, right? But there's an entire couple of months in front of us. We'll see where they can close. But here's what matters. With those three top 100 players that Florida signed on signing day, Mullen would average four, not average. He would cap out at four top 100 players per cycle, often with one of them transferring before they even played. Sometimes he had one. Sometimes he had four. Sometimes he had three. 
Napier already has three, and he has half a class build. Well, he has four with McKellen and, in and there. And four with McKellen, yeah, right. So he has four. So he already is at the most that Dan Mullen ever had. It's been 10 days, and the only guy he had a prior relationship with, the only guy, was the three-star lineman he took from Louisiana. So that's unreal. Now, is it done? No. Has he proven he's Urban Meyer at recruiting yet, or is he any of those guys yet? Is he Jimbo Fisher? Is he Nick Saban? Is he Kirby Smart? Not yet. But this goes to something you and I have talked about from the beginning. When you hear any media member or really any pundit start to make excuses for Florida coaches for not being able to recruit, those will ring hollow with this podcast for good reason. It's not like all of a sudden Florida is a different place. Yes, they have the facility coming. That's great. Dan Mullen was not going to land these kind of guys. And the facility was still coming and he was established and he had won some games, right? Recruiting is a skill. It's a process. It is an art of war, if you will. And Napier has hit the ground running as best as he possibly can, which should, which I think it did, give a lot of Gators fans some serious momentum and good vibes early on coming in. Now, here's one more bonus I want to put on this this um this you know holiday flavoring if you will napier has talked about the character of each one of these guys he's pulled in rather extensively it's the first time that i've heard a florida coach talk so much about the character here's what kind of guy this is here's what this guy values here's what his family's about here's what kind of man this person wants to become that means a lot to me because i think football teams largely are going to be extra successful if they have good character if they work well together if they're coachable right and I love that Napier is not just saying it coaches will talk all the time about a guy's work ethic and character and whatever but Napier puts so much emphasis on it it's refreshing and I love it and it's really nice to hear that I think part of his selection process is I'm going to stargaze and I'm also going to try to find the guys with stars that have character that fit my system that fit how I want to run my football team and so for me I could not be more pleased with what I've seen so far in the first 10 to 14 days of the Napier recruiting era. Yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting the way he went about this because this was really important. Um, you know, he could have not landed these guys. I don't think anyone would have blamed him, but I did some, you know, scrolling through the, you know, 247 composite of the, you know, kind of player rankings. And there's a precious few of these four and five stars who are left unsigned. And most of them are not in a place where you would have any real natural links to Florida. So it was important for him to make moves. And if he didn't, maybe he couldn't have, right? But the fact he's able to pull this off, I think bodes really well for the future. And it, you know, I think thinking about who he didn't take too. Right. He didn't stuff the class full of guys who may not make it down the road. Right. He was selective about who he took on that day. It even, I think, upgrades my opinion of him keeping Christian Williams, the guy he brought up from Louisiana, that people are like, I don't know about that. Why are you bringing in a guy who's committed there? Well, the fact that he didn't take anybody else of that profile would show you that, okay, he really does have a pretty high opinion of this guy. You know, even Alabama and Georgia will take a three-star guy. Now, we have lots of three-star guys in this class, but um, if Georgia takes a three-star guy, you would think, 
okay, there's something they really like about him because they're not really taking more than one to two of these guys, right? And, you know, famously, um, now I'm blanking on their defensive tackle's name. I said famously, their star defensive tackle. James is not helping me out here. You're the director of personnel. You have to know these things. Okay. Well, you guys know who I'm talking about. Um, Jordan Davis. There we go. Uh, Three-star guy. Obviously, they were very correct on that assessment. Oh, yeah. And then some. Yeah. So, again, we've talked about you You should have a project or two of a guy in your class. If you have evaluated him, you don't care that he's a three-star, he's not a four-star, whatever. Um, that you think, okay, well, people are missing on this and we have it right. Again, you don't want to do that all the time. So, I like – I think that – I think – ups my confidence in his taking the guys that we did take who are lower rated because some guys did opt out of the class and for we don't know the full reasons but i don't know this class is going to improve that much with the rest of the signing period now they'll probably take some guys but there's not a lot of high level guys left there might be a lot of guys in the portal that we take but there's not a lot of four and five-star guys left. So I think it was important that Florida made the moves they made last Wednesday. Well, and that's just how important it is, right? If if Florida doesn't land another top 100 guy, they already have an equal number of top 100 guys to a typical Mullen class, which means if he fills it with some threes and four stars or if he takes some guys in the transfer market to bolster it up, if he can land five to six SEC capable starters with one elite player from this class where you had 10 days and then two months to do it, that would be enough. Because again, year two, which we're going to be hammering this entire year, is the year to put your stamp on a program as a recruiting coach. And that's where he'll get a big haul and you might get 10 or 11 starters from that particular class. So if you can get that five or six starter number from this class and the rest of the guys are good character guys, they fit well, that's enough to get you going. And I think that's what he's already accomplished, which is why you see a lot of the guys who follow recruiting closely saying that was a huge moment for Florida. And it builds a ton of momentum on the trail, basically signaling to a lot of other athletes out there, hey, what's this buzz about Florida, right? These guys are going there under a quick kind of 10-day haul. Like, what's going on there? What should I learn about them? And that's exactly the kind of news Florida has needed, especially after a lot of the recruiting negativity surrounding the program. So, there's been lots of turnarounds. We had turnaround Tuesday, and then we had a whole other turnaround, obviously, on early signing day, where I think we got a really great Christmas gift as a program. Anything else to tell you about Napier, kind of how he approached the signing day? I think it's what we said. You have to give a guy a chance to implement his process. He has a plan and a process, and you and I were very careful to say it doesn't mean that that process is going to work. Alan, we've mentioned this. You are a big Jacksonville Jaguars fan. The Jags have been terrible for a long time, but there are moments when they've had some GMs that have been so at odds with everyone else that you can choose to believe that they either have the market cornered and no one knows what they know, or they're probably wrong, right? Well, the thing about Napier's process is, and I'm going to keep coming back to this until proven wrong, all it's done is win him championships at Louisiana, right? And he comes from the schools that have also won championships. If you go back and look at the success of Billy Napier, what he's experienced with the staffs he's been on. And as a head coach, there's a lot to look at when it comes to a fruitful process. And therefore, you're going to give that guy a second to put his process in. And so far, again, 
early returns on the portfolio. But as we like to say in investing, past performance does not always, right? Does not always prove or indicate future results. So it's not predictive per se. We have to keep watching, but so far so good. It's a very good start. If you were on the fence still or you're not encouraged, you should be very encouraged. What happened last week was excellent and fantastic and a great start to the Napier recruiting era. There is still obviously tons of work to be done, but a great start, no doubt. Yeah, and I would say just that combination of aggressiveness and patience that he showed very aggressively going after some of these guys and then also the patience not to fill it up on guys that don't fit the profile of what he's looking for. I think that it's a good sign for the future. Okay, let's talk about kind of some of the other storylines here. The big one, Travis Hunter, corner from Georgia, number one player in the country, longtime FSU commit, flips to Jackson State, who's headed up by Deion Sanders in a I don't know, some kind of barstool deal where he's getting paid one and a half million dollars to go there. Uh, thoughts on that? College football is surreal right now. There's been some good articles about how a lot of the college football players with their NIL deals are making more than NFL players are for the NFL minimum. Yet the large majority of these guys on NIL deals are not even going to sniff being an NFL minimum rostered player. And this will clear itself up. We've talked a lot about markets. That's what markets do, right? Is they, they can be inefficient in the beginning, but the more you make a trade, the more you see market value, it will become efficient. They will figure out who's worth paying and not paying, who's moving the needle and who's not. And it will happen quickly. But I think the big thing here for me is what Deion Sanders has been trying to say since then. He has gone on every possible media outlet to say, look, Travis Hunter didn't sign because of NIL money. Yeah, that's nice. That's big. We're going to do that stuff. We're going to be a 2022 school, so to speak, in a mindset. He signed because Jackson State has as many Hall of Famers in football as FSU does. You know, that many NFL Hall of Famers. Because the historically black colleges have elite players in equal numbers to most other schools in the NFL. And because I want to make an HBCU school elite because there's no reason that it can't be. And I want to connect the history to the present. And Travis Hunter echoed a very similar thing in his in his acceptance commitment there was that, hey, I want to walk in the, in the steps of Walter Payton and guys like that who went here. That means a lot to me. I want to bridge the gap from past to present. And that's a great story. It's a great recruiting pitch. And if that's genuine and authentic, which it, it feels like it is right now from Deion Sanders, that could have some legs. I certainly prefer that story significantly to a money grab from Travis Hunter. Time will tell which one it is. I don't want to say, hey, that's a money grab. What's he doing? And I, I don't want to say he did it entirely because of that. I'm just going to bring you what Deion Sanders has consistently been saying. He's chosen not to go out and say, if you choose Jackson State, you're going to get so much NIL money. He's really tried to go the other way and connect it to something bigger so it's a story to keep an eye, but nevertheless, Alan, a momentous and rather incredible commitment from this kind of guy where it's got some people saying, could this hurt his NFL future playing against subpar competition three or four years in a row? Does this matter? Is this something that's going to change football forever? I think the answer to those questions are no. You're going to sometimes have these anomalies where things line up and they fit and that can occur. I don't think this is going to begin a wave of a lot of players wanting to go to a school like Jackson State. Yeah, we'll see if 
both or either Hunter and Dion are there next year. So we'll see. That's a big take. Well, I mean, Dion can get an upgrade in the job as well. He could. Yeah. I that mean, would make the Nolan Void statement of him really wanting to be at an HBCU to bring it to prominence. Yeah, well, people say a lot of stuff. They do. That's when that's what we're kind so, of illustrating. Is I don't know. I don't want to totally doubt his sincerity, but uh, Deion Sanders is known for yeah. talking. Oh, I agree. That's what that's so, what we're kind of presenting. Is it's like you really can't know where he stands. He's he's pitching a nice story though. If it's it was true. big news though, and it really kills FSU. I mean, that was the centerpiece of their class. A lot of momentum for them having that guy on board for that long. Now, it did help them along the way. They they accomplished a lot of things just by having him in the class, even if he didn't ultimately sign them there. But, yeah, it's going to show up on the field when he's not there. Yeah, and FSU, good counterexample here just quickly, right? Florida is now all of a sudden receiving this tremendous positive buzz. And Florida State is going in the complete opposite direction. Now, a guy who had a lot of success at Memphis and Mike Norvell, a guy that when he was hired was like, this is not a peak-level excitement hire for us, but we thought it's viable, it could work is looking like as the three-year test comes to its final year that it is not going to work. There's there's nothing there indicating that they are where they need to be. Um, and Florida State fans, I think, are, are rightfully pressing every panic button they can because things do not look good at Florida State. And it looks worse when you get Florida trending up with Napier and then you get Miami with Cristobal where they know they're going to get recruits. All of a sudden, Florida State it seems to be really falling behind. For sure. Okay, any other thoughts on the other stuff that happened on early signing day? Just keep an eye on the SEC and how they get so many talented players. And again, if you're someone who thinks recruiting doesn't matter, it matters. There's a reason why the SEC is best every single year. There's a reason why all the best coaches want to be here. The talent is here, and that's where the players want to be, and that was proven yet again on signing day. And don't sleep on the fact that Jimbo Fisher is overtaking Bama right now, even if it's just for a year. He's winning those recruiting battles in AM's monster class right now in the wings. Yeah, and they, there's still a couple of guys, top 20, top 10 guys who are, I don't know if they're projected to go there, but that is the most likely outcome that they go there. I mean, they're been trending towards like greatest signing class or greatest recruiting class of all time kind of thing in terms of the numbers and the ranking. They have a ton of guys in the class, so that um, kind of moves the needle in that direction. But I don't know if they can repeat that. But this is the first time someone other than Alabama or Georgia has won the quote-unquote recruiting title. Now, again, it's not over. There's a secondary signing day, real signing day coming up. But there's not a lot of there's not enough people out there probably to really jumble things up too much. So, uh, yeah, great job by AM. And then, of course, Alabama and Georgia are right there. But Kentucky, Missouri, um, you, Somebody else, too, had a very nice day um, for where they normally are. Kentucky, I believe, a top 10-ish, 12-ish class, depending on where they end up, you know, after everything is said and done in February. Vanderbilt with a decent class for them. Florida is actually, like, last, of course, at 50th, 51st, or whatever Florida currently is. So, uh, yeah, a lot of movers and shakers uh, and let's see, Auburn, who had a tough year, is there around 13-14. So the SEC got better. So even though Florida had a nice signing day, there's still a lot of work to be done to accumulate the kind of talent 
just to beat the teams that you're supposed to beat and to challenge Georgia and Alabama, you're going to have to recruit as well as them, which is put you on a pace that, you know, would be, uh, you know, monstrous in in the other era. Yeah, and a couple other updates along the schools, like kind of rising, falling. Despite Texas's abysmal, horrific on-field performance, they are fifth right now in recruiting. So there's a lifeline there for Sarkeesian. We talked about Marcus Freeman at Notre Dame, right? They're they're seventh right now. And then North Carolina and Mac Brown. This one perhaps surprises me the most, Alan. They're right now number eight, two five-stars in their class. That's That's pretty remarkable to me at a school like North Carolina. You mentioned Kentucky at 11, Oklahoma sliding down to 10. They've not been down there in a while. Missouri at a remarkable number 12 with a five-star recruit as well. And then Clemson, of course, I think has been the biggest faller thus far, right? Lots of attrition, lots of stuff going on. Still have a small class, still top heavy, uh, but that's that's probably the big the big note there. And then Lane Kiffin, a guy we talked about, we'll follow up on him, did get himself into the top 25 in recruiting. Not the strong push you'd want to see, which we talked about on that baseline test, if he were really going to prove himself to be a top recruiter. Did not get that second year bump you're looking for there, but he did improve it enough that he is going to essentially pass his baseline recruiting test if he keeps getting classes in that top 25. So, yeah, and even Oklahoma, you know, I think they had a catastrophic moment. So for them to still land in the top 10-ish, I think it's still really good for a quote-unquote transition class. So to have their guts ripped out by Lincoln Riley leaving and not tumbling all the way down in the 40s or something like that, which could have been a possibility. So I think they're really would be happy about that class right now, considering you know they had to hire a coach. So, but yeah, I mean, Kentucky 11, Missouri 12, Auburn 13, Tennessee 15, LSU 19. Small which, class from right. them as well. Two five-stars. Yeah, pretty top-heavy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Arkansas 20, South Carolina 21. That's most of the SEC right there in the top 25. And then you said Ole Miss. And you know, I read something about Lane Kiffin talking about they they just didn't want to reach for anybody. That they're not going to fill up their class with guys they don't like because of the transfer portal. And I think it's still going to take a little while to sort this out. There's going to be some people who make some gambles on this. It's going to work out for them. They're going to improve their roster, and there some people are going to miss. And so it's going to be really, really interesting. I I like where that Napier position just to be able to take as many transfer guys as we want it to. Because if you don't like these high school players, because you can't get in on them because you're too late in the process, that's not as true in the transfer portal. So who knows? We might take a ton of transfer portal guys. Remains to be seen what his philosophy is there. Yeah, it does indeed. And as you mentioned, the SEC East, they're taking major steps up in recruiting. South Carolina, of course, landing Spencer Rattler, moving up in the top 25 in recruiting. Now you got Missouri, Kentucky, and Georgia, and Tennessee, all in the top 22. So Florida, of course, you know, at the very end right now, a lot to be settled. And Nick Evers, the top headline recruit for Florida's class, commits to Oklahoma which was a big win for for Brent Venables and his staff. So that kind of wraps up our thoughts on early signing day. Alan, there was a staff hire Mm -hmm. that Florida had. Wide receiver coach Kerry Colbert, who played at USC, one of their best receivers, super productive, played in the NFL, has been coaching at USC out there for three or four years now. What do you think of this hire for Florida's wide receiver coach, pulling in a West Coast guy 
to come coach here in Gainesville. I like it. I like the potential of it. I, I like the profile of it. He's a guy, young guy, known as a recruiting heavy, focused person. That's you know presumably his skill set, and I think that's what you want. You got you want to bring in guys who are going to recruit at the top level. So that's the type of staff he continues to build. Outside of someone maybe like Patrick Tony, who is your X's and O's kind of guy on defense. I mean, you know, I don't know what level of recruiter he is. He might be an excellent recruiter. But the rest of these guys are pretty much known as recruiters. And that's the type of staff that he's building is much more on the spectrum of talent acquisition, at least from what we know about them. That Hopefully they're also great developers of talent, but seemingly their lead foot is in recruiting. And it makes sense because I think he's constructing a roster that's going to have teachers and recruiters, which is what you have to have, right? That's You have to have both. Nick Saban has always done that extremely well. Have your marquee recruiters and have your teachers to make sure the players are getting that kind of coaching. But you have to have the players to get that kind of coaching to get to that level. I also think this is very calculated and I like it. Now, look, as far as Kerry Colbert goes, it's very hard to figure out what even USC fans think of him. There was some frustration because they didn't land some of the traditional top in-state California receivers. I don't know how much you can blame Colbert for that when you've got Clay Hilton at the helm and things are falling apart. He's been basically on a hot seat for four years. It's really tough there. And he still was landing productive talent, obviously. I mean, Drake London was one of the best receivers in the country Correct. this past year. Correct. So I think there's a lot to like there, especially if you put him on a productive staff. But I love it. Look at what he's doing. Where are the recruiting hotbed states? Florida, Texas, Georgia, Louisiana, California. So now you've got two guys in Jaluk and Raymond that are Louisiana. Now you've got a California direct tie who's a younger guy, 39 years old. And we'll see what the rest of the staff fills out. But it wouldn't surprise me, Alan, if you wound up with a Texas guy. Now, of course, Napier himself is from Georgia, right? And you had basically a guy from each of the most important states. That's exactly what a guy who has a process and a calculated plan to hire coaches may or may not do. Time will tell. But either way, I like it. I think it shows a concerted effort to build a national brand. And also to have a guy who has a national name and receiver at a school that's known for producing receivers. So a lot to like about the potential of that hire and especially the calculation of it. So I think another box checked for, again, a process-based, system-based coaching fill-out that is occurring here at Florida. We will continue to watch as Florida still has six spots left to fill. Five spots are filled, six on coaching um, on-field coaching spots are left, and they've been hiring a ton of analysts, Alan. A ton. A ton. You see it every single day. There was a joke about Dwight Schrute being announced as uh, as one of the <laughs> one of the analysts hired. But it seems like the one that maybe got the most shine was Katie Turner. Mm-hmm. And again, you and I are not recruiting Knicks, but Katie Turner is, is largely known for being one of the staples of recruiting at Georgia. So for her to leave Georgia and come to Florida was a minor coup, to say the least. Right, she's been the lifeblood there for a while. She now leaves to join Florida staff, raising some eyebrows. Perhaps is it just money? Is it the relationship she's had with Napier and others? Who knows? What is it? But she is known as a dynamo, especially with the families. And one of her comments already when she came into Florida is basically saying that don't worry, Gators, Gators fans, recruiting season is is always in season. Yeah, a little, and little a little nod there. to the staff before, um, which I kind of enjoyed that, but. Secondarily, I love the fact that they have a, a 
like a, a head of recruiting innovation. Of course, I love innovation. Innovation is everything. And I love that Napier is creating a post for like recruiting innovation. I don't know what that means, but I like it. Yeah, I mean, I want to innovate. I want to be better. I want to be thinking of ways to improve the process. So yeah, so far, lots of those guys being named, something you've never seen at Florida. And we will keep you abreast of what's going on. Uh, but I think it's largely been all positive thus far from from both fronts and from the kind of building your building your empire, if you will, at the start of this video game, so to speak. So far, it's gone off pretty well. Okay, a question from longtime listener, friend, Eric Yuri, who's asking, should we look at adjusting the three-year test and why would that even be in the purview? Well, we see the constraints that are happening with this early signing day, that essentially you're handcuffed in a way that previous coaches were not pre early signing day, right? The year able to put together, if not a great class, a, a decent class, right? That hopefully would serve you as a transition. It wouldn't be like your bellwether class. It wasn't your year two and your year three classes, but it wouldn't handicap you. But these guys are maybe being handicapped in a way that others weren't. You look at a guy, a known recruiter like Mario Cristobal, he gets the on the job, just a few days before signing day at Miami, that class is not going to be, we presume, typical of what he's normally going to bring into Miami. So that is a that is the one of the first building blocks in moving yourself towards winning something significant in the first three years. So does that give you pause a little bit in being like that three-year test is as efficient? Do you think... We're going to need to look at the data from the time period of the early signing day and say, well, maybe it needs to be extended a little bit depending on when the guy gets hired. It's possible, of course, because the paradigm is shifting some with how recruiting works, with how the transfer portal works. My hunch, though, is that the data will remain the same. The test will remain the same. And here's the reason why. If you recall the three-year test, the real goal is to – is to give you a rubric as an AD to make a decision as to whether you should retain your coach or fire your coach. So let's say that you go through three years and everything year after year after year just trends up higher and higher and higher, but you haven't, let's say, won a national title or even made the playoff. And then you look back and you think, okay, well, if that year one was by far his worst recruiting class and that, that allowed us to be a little behind and now we're heading into year four and that's shaping up to be a great recruiting class that's even higher than year three was, of course you hang on to your guy, right? You don't just say he'll never win because maybe you say, you know what? There is reason to believe that first year is really difficult to build your team based upon what you can recruit. But I have this suspicion that the best guys, Allen, are still going to find a way to do it. Napier just did. Land some of that talent, find a way to fill the gaps with the transfer portal, build your culture, get everything rolling. And by year three on the field, I think they're still going to be extremely competitive. I think it's going to be very hard to find a guy who's just not getting it done that happens to make it work in the fourth year because of that lost recruiting year. But I certainly allow for the fact that times are changing. Billy Napier 10 years ago would have been able to come in and potentially sign a top five or 10 class with three full months to go. That's a virtual impossibility depending on what the previous coaching staff has left you. So that is something that needs to be looked at Time will tell. I think we will begin to take a look at how that works out. But I still suspect, like I mentioned before, that three-year test is going to probably hold true. 
because of what you see the best coaches do in their year two recruiting class and they put the culture in, they get everything else going. It just doesn't seem to take as long as perhaps we as fans sometimes think it would to get these engines going. But again, you know, time will tell, especially with NIL budgets and in the, the hyper competitiveness of the SEC. There's only so many of these guys to go around. Um, you know, you could make an argument that maybe the SEC needs a, a four year test because it's going to be that competitive versus other conferences. Who knows? We'll find out. But for now, I'm going to stick with the three year test until enough data emerges to suggest that, hey, we need to wind up pumping the brakes. And again, just keep in mind what it does. It's really telling you at the end of year three, is this a good or bad person to keep? And sometimes it's very clear. This person's just not trending in the right direction. Other times, it's a wait and see. Take another year. It's fine. Nothing wrong with that. Well, the tool, I think it, you roll over the tool. The tool doesn't roll you, right? The metric is like, I'm in charge of the decision, not the three-year test, right? So you're allowed to look at it. And I think what it removes historically is some of the, this is unknowable until like four or five years. And that's generally not the case. And again, I think a smart AD will look at the changing landscape and say, what what is the position this guy inherit? Especially somebody even at Tennessee, like this is not the, where the program should be. When he first got hired, 20 guys left in the transfer portal. They're just going to have to give him more time to build the consistency, right? That There might be a little bit of ups and downs, but you shouldn't have like the Will Muschamp year three is a colossal failure type of year, right? That would be, okay, you can just go ahead and close the book there. I don't need any more data, right? Even Dan Mullen this year can see what happens, right? Now, if you get there and you're in year three and you go, you know, 10 and two and you lose to Georgia and another close one, you just miss out on something, but the recruiting is there. Everything is happening. And you go, there's no reason to make a change here. We were right there. And Georgia's the number one team in the country. We lost by three to them. And the, this other team, we lost at Auburn in the crazy Jordan hair environment, you know? Yeah. I love where we're headed. I'm going to give us another year, especially since our recruiting went from 50th to fifth to third. And I'm not bailing out right now. And I think you'd be foolish to say, well, this three-year test tells me this when there's all this new data available to me. Correct. It's a tool, what you said. I think it's one you should lean heavily on because of what history says. But as you mentioned, it is a tool. But yes, for now, definitive answer to the question is no, I'm not adjusting it to the four-year test, but we will keep an eye on it. That's what any good, right, always seek the truth kind of mindset research person would do is you're always taking advantage of what new data is there. Is there correlation? Is there causation? Does this make sense to alter it? But the tough part is you have to allow some of the data to roll out before you can test it, right? One thing I don't ever want to do if I'm an AD, is make predictive bets based upon predictive modeling that has no historical basis. Right now, you know for sure the three-year test works and it's solid. No need to abandon it for something that has no history of working and often gives a coach too long um, you know, until proven otherwise. So I think you give that the benefit of the doubt and you wait to see if it starts to, if you start to see more of those anomalies that flip. You say, hey, wait a minute, There's this, is, this has changed. This is different than what we have seen before. Right, I think... The two big things that always sign day, which might go away, potentially. There's a lot of buzz about 
we got to do something because this is the knock on effects of this are bad. It's bad. Yeah. I mean, to me, it, it should go away. I don't know that they're going to sure. be able to, to unplug that, but I think a that lot one of feels like it could move in favor of it. The transfer portal, I think is almost even bigger in terms of roster management, right? Now coaching hiring and firing is the major knock on effect of the early signing day. Right. But the transfer window portal and the fact that you can now transfer without sitting out a year is going to, I think, radically alter college football. That actually, let's say there's no early signing day issue with a new coach. You could almost think about going the other way with the transfer window is that you could maybe in two years improve your team enough because you can add talent more aggressively. Now, I don't know. That might be wrong. That might be opposite of what bears out. But I think just to acknowledge that those are two significant things that are different now in college football that are really impacting the shape and the timing of things. And I think especially with the transfer portal, the programs that figure that out the best are going to have a major first mover advantage with that. Like how do you allocate resources? So again, why this matters is that you have, without getting the minutiae, you only allowed to have, certain number of initial counters like guys that you're able to take in a first signing class and you have an 85 man roster limit. Now that's flexed a little bit because of that extra COVID year. But when all this shakes out, managing that, how many spots you have for transfers, how many spots you have for high schoolers is going to be a really difficult balance. And it's an extra layer of complexity. I think that the best staffs and programs are going to be able to navigate. And cause you don't want to find yourself caught in a talent bind because you've allocated resources too heavy in one direction or another. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Speaking of the transfer portal, a notable one for the Florida Gators, one Emory Jones has entered the portal. Now, this is weird because he's still presumably playing in the bowl game. This doesn't happen ever, maybe? Question mark? I don't know. But he's still playing. He's still with us for one more game. Fortunately or unfortunately, but haven't closed the book on Emory Jones yet, but his future is set. He is apparently leaving the program. This is another win for Napier. I mean, you chalk this up into getting off to the right start. And this is a win for Emory Jones too. You know, look, I care what's what's best for Emory. I think Emory, as I have said a million times on this podcast from the beginning, Alan has been a program guy. He's never complained. He supported Kyle Trask when it was frustrating for him to be, to be, you know, number two. He was the original Dan Mullen recruit, the guy that got the buzz. You just haven't heard him say a bad thing. 
And here he is. He's going to finish out this season. He's going to quarterback the bowl game. He announced his transfer plans. But make no mistake about it, this is a win for the program, right? This is a win for Anthony Richardson, the guy who should be playing quarterback unless he gets beat out next year by somebody who's even better in spring. Let's say Del Rio's better, fine, right? But it's a win, and I think it helps to signal what Napier is doing that Dan Mullen wouldn't do, which is play the best guy. And again, make no mistake about it, Emory Jones is not transferring if he thinks he's the best guy. But I think he already knows that's not the direction this staff is going, and, and good for him. Hopefully he lands. I hope he's wise enough to land in a place that allows him to play, perhaps against some competition that allows him to develop and enjoy his college football time. I'd hate to see him try to go somewhere where he's got significant comp where I just don't think he has what it takes to win that job. And I hope he proves me wrong because, again, I really like the guy. I think he's been a model guy, you know, never in the news for anything bad, supporting the team, never a bad quote, nothing to to create divisiveness that anyone has ever seen from him. And I want to honor that, and I love that. And so I appreciate all he gave to Florida Uh, For sure. But again, future direction of the program, I think this was the move that I was hoping to see. We kept Richardson, at least so far, it seemed that's the case. And then Emory Jones is on to elsewhere, which is what you wanted. We asked for that. We hoped for it. And it's happened. So I think that's good for everyone involved. And that's part of, you know, that's part of being a good manager, Alan. You know, my dad told me when I was a kid, and it's always stuck with me, you know, when he was working at um, a really large, recognizable, you know, company you would know, when you had to move someone out, you, you never wanted to be the person that moved someone out because you felt you know vengeful or vindictive or frustrated to where you just wanted to get them. It was always about doing what's best for them. And you and I have talked about this. And sometimes you got to look someone in the face and say, look, this, this role, this place is not best for you. And I appreciate everything you're giving here. You're doing all you can, but there's a better place for you that fits your skill sets, that's going to be better for you, that's going to allow your development better. And I think that's the case with Emory. And I don't know if those conversations even happened, right? But the bottom line is that's what I think is going on here, what should go on here, and, and what is ultimately best for both. Uh, so that's that's how I feel about it. I'm happy with it, and I'm looking forward to you know, a season next year where we're going to see Richardson and perhaps anyone else that wants to try to take that starting quarterback job get some reps. Yeah, because I think normally you would say something like, well, he's an experienced quarterback. It'd be, if he's not starting, it'd be better to have him in the room. But – I think with quarterback, it really makes things clear. And that's helpful for a program, right? That it clears the decks for Richardson to start. Or, again, get beaten out. And if you can beat out Anthony Richardson, I think you're going to be a very, very viable quarterback in that locker room. And, yeah, it just there's not reps going to somebody who's not going to win be in the job long term. You're fine giving reps to – freshmen because they're developmental guys that are older that have already been passed by. There's not helpful to have them have the kind of reps that they need to improve. And so I think, yeah, again, best for everybody. And I'll be rooting for Emory. I hope he goes to a spot, like you said, where he can really flourish and yeah, that he would wish him only success wherever he goes. All right, Alan, with that in the rear view, obviously Emory Jones will land somewhere, right? We know that Bogle, Chris Bogle, landed in Michigan State. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've talked about Mincy at Tennessee. Where does Emory Jones wind up? Where do these guys wind up? But more importantly for Florida, 
what position group should Florida be targeting in the portal? There's no doubt Napier knows he's going to have to fill this class, and he talked about it already, at least loosely, with some guys from the portal. You're going to continue to see names come out as bowl season ends. Rather than get into individual names right now, we will as time goes on, what are some of the position groupings that Florida loves? Hey, look, we got to shore up this part on our roster. We should be really targeting this kind of guy. Well, unfortunately, I think defensive tackle is, again, a spot that you would love to take a guy. Um, It's not as desperate a need as it was last year, but still fairly thin with guys who've actually played snaps in college football. Now, I think moving forward, it's going to be fine. Like, I don't think you would probably say this next year, but um, that's still a spot where I would feel a little thin, right? You have a guy like Gervin Dexter who's played a lot of snaps and you feel really good about, but behind him, talented guys, but guys who've not really played yet. So I think you look there first and then offensive tackle, guard, really anybody that you would feel good about coming in there and competing for a job, I think you would want to take. And yeah, this should be the spot really where I think you cast the net the widest because you have the most potential for guys to come in and play defensive tackle. I think it has to be a really good guy for them actually to want him to come in and play and take snaps away from the guys that are already on the roster. But offensive line is such a need. And then I'd say the next one for me is receiver. You know, losing Jacob Copeland definitely creates a, a spot where you could take a guy who could come in and have an impact. Um, I think you could even take two receivers here. Now, there's some talent there in the receiver room. I don't think it's a desperate situation like defensive tackle was last year, but you could certainly use a guy who you know, would up the talent question. I don't think you always want to just take a guy to take a guy, but that would be a place I would look. And then maybe corner like a guy who's had some significant snaps at corner. There's a lot of young guys there, but I mean, Elijah blades is the guy who fits this profile from last year who, you know, played a few games and then was kicked off the team. But if you could find a guy who had a, was a, you know, really good reputation, played a lot of snaps, very high profile guy who's in the portal for reasons that are, you know, maybe coaching change or something, things are happening. Those guys are going to be out there. Can you land one that fits what you want to do? I think that'd be another place they might look. Yeah, it could be. Corner, corners, yeah. I, I think you went in the right order there because corner Florida, especially with Jaden Hill coming back, should be Jason Marshall, Hill. Obviously, you know, I think Helm is a step, a significant step beneath those two, but he got better every single, every single snap. But knowing that Napier likes big corners, he want, which I love that, by the way. I love, love, love that he looks for 6'2", 6'3", corners. I think that's the modern way to recruit a corner. I'm all about it. But the offensive line, I think, is going to be his primary focus, as you mentioned, and as it should be. And that's actually a great thing because it's right into his sweet spot, right? Louisiana has somehow put more than one guy in the NFL as an offensive lineman in the past four years, which is, don't sleep on that. That's incredible. So I think if you're looking across the country, you might find a guy who's not coming from a power five school per se, but you like him a lot. And he's played some, you've seen his film and you're like, Hey, look, I've put guys in the league. I think you can start for this team and you can help me. That's crucial because look, Florida is going to be running again, this wide zone system. 
It's versatile. It requires good lateral movement. It requires quickness and intelligence. It's a complicated system. I think the best thing here is he knows what he's looking for. I don't think you're going to see Napier just take linemen to get bodies. I think he's going to try to take guys that can contribute. And you mentioned that. That's the key. They have to contribute. And the tough thing about O-line is, and this is the problem Florida's in, and we've been stuck in this, is you have to build that position group to get nine or 10 quality guys that are there. And we've been nowhere near that. And he knows that. He talks about winning at the line of scrimmage. Same thing is true on the defensive line. I think he's going to heavily focus on that line of scrimmage and knowing that's Florida's biggest weakness, um, especially on the offensive side, but also on the defensive side to make sure he's got maybe a little bit of depth in there in case you take an injury to Dexter, right? Can you get another guy who's played a lot so at least you have that guy on the field kind of enacting what your coaches want? So this will be interesting to watch. Um, for sure. And I like your mention of receiver Allen as well. I think if you could get a Van Jefferson kind of guy, I mean, think of what Van Jefferson did for Florida. Totally. Look at what he's doing in the league. If that kind of guy is available, of course you take him and Florida should be extremely interesting to that kind of guy, especially because as we've said, Napier is running such a pro style offense that you come into this offense and you are going to be NFL ready out of the gate. With what they're running, how they run it, you run a lot of two receiver sets, which the NFL does as well. There's a lot to like as a receiver that you can sell to them and say, look, here's what I envision you at in this role, and here's how we throw the football. So I think he's got a lot to sell. The question is what kind of talent happens to come into the portal, which he can't control. Who is actually available? Who's coming into the portal? Do you like their character type stuff? So that he can't control. So we're going to see what's in the inventory, so to speak, and then what he chooses to do. But I think a lot is going to happen here. Right in high school, obviously you're starting from scratch, and you can recruit guys years out. Right, you can identify and connect with talent. Also, unfortunately for Florida, it's much easier to go find a corner or receiver than it is a offensive lineman. Those guys don't come free very often. The guys who fit the profile of a immediate impact starter. Now you can still take a guy who you literally like, but he might not fix the problem of this year, which is kind of what you're looking for a little bit. It's just a f- tough to find those guys. Cause they're, there's just few of them out there, right? There's more people who could play corner receiver than who could play offensive line at sec level. Cause you know, you don't have to be a monstrous physical se- specimen to play receiver and be really productive. Um, so that's working against us. And you know, unfortunately, the previous staff had a great reputation for doing really well with transfers. This staff has no reputation, so doesn't mean they can't do it. That was one thing that I think the previous staff had going for them was they had done really well in the transfer market. Um, and, you know, I think other than maybe quarterback and safety, Florida could take a guy at almost any position if they were talented enough. They have a lot of talent at safety. Um, the two guys that took this year, um, Corey Collier, near five-star last year. Of course, you've got uh, Torrance there. So I don't know if they want to block those guys. It's a lot of talent. And even the guys who didn't mention McMillan and whoever else I'm leaving out right now who've played. But other than that, I think every defensive end, linebacker, tight end, running back, if the right guy comes available, they would take him, I'm sure. Yeah, and here's the key is it's all relative, right? So you're looking at your recruiting board and you're saying, I could take this three-star from you know Georgia 
or I could take this transfer market guy. And the transfer guy's here for two years. This three-star ceiling maybe is right here. That's the evaluation you're making. For sure. And, and, and what's my need? Is my need more immediate? Like if I take the three-star recruit two or three years from now, does he ever play? If I'm landing four or five stars ahead of him, probably not. And that's what's going to happen. And that's what should happen. It should be very tactical. Look at what's available in the recruiting world. Look at what's available in the Porter world and make a decision to what fits your roster. Have a plan. Have a three-year plan. Here's how I get to an SEC title in three years. Here's the positions of need I have. Here's who graduates and leaves and whatever. You can model all those things out, and I believe Napier is doing that. And that's why it will be interesting to see how he handles this because this, this is a difficult task because, again, as you mentioned, for Florida being Florida to have the offensive line where it is and where it has been is just completely unacceptable. And it is, as you mentioned, the hardest position group to fix quickly. And that is continued and has been a huge problem for Florida. For I believe that will, yeah, I believe that will change now, but it cannot change overnight, which is exactly what you just said. And that's going to be the frustrating part of it, but we're going to see how he chooses to address that. So we'll keep an eye on that for you. We'll keep you updated all throughout the off season as things occur. All right. Coaching carousel. This one's from the NFL. Urban Meyer was fired he seemingly was putting on a reality show of what not to Mm. do alan he became unglued unplugged or you could argue this always was urban meyer but in college when you have better players than everyone else and you're winning and more control and you have way more control things are very different and you've heard a lot of nfl coaches say that about certain college coaches where it's like hey that guy would never survive in the nfl there were a lot of questions about urban meyer's methods working in the nfl he's seemingly fallen so far from grace you're getting people writing articles saying would any college take him and the answer is of course they totally would despite all the baggage because of what he's done in college but maybe not right now Maybe right now. Maybe they'd I wait don't think a, year, a power five job right? probably wouldn't. And that's what I want to highlight is that's how far in this one year he has knocked himself out of viability. It's a remarkable collapse. For a guy who's had a lot of interesting stuff follow him around, this one seems to have really stuck, at least for the moment. I mean, I think he was the top choice for the USC job, which Lincoln Riley just took. Had he not wanted the Jaguars job. I think if he had called USC, who knows? I mean, he probably should have been the top candidate there, even over maybe even over Lincoln Riley, although that would have been debatable. Oh, I think probably for sure, given what he's done at Ohio State and elsewhere. So this is a disaster from the beginning. I, I wasn't in favor of it. And the, I don't know if I went on record on the podcast. I didn't hate it. I was okay with it because the Jaguars have been bad, but with the position the Jaguars are in, they should have just taken the best guy available. They didn't need to take a big home run swing. But I think every choice Urban made, I had either some question marks with or disagreed with. From his coaching staff hires, I thought all of them were very uninspired or strange. I made a lot of news with who he hired as a strength coach who was coming off a scandal at Iowa, which why would you even just touch that guy when there's a million strength coaches out there? The draft picks, the free agent signings, the way he talked about things, the way he moved the world. Again, you can be successful. You don't you don't have to do it exactly the way I think you should do it by any means, right? I don't I'm not a savant on, you know, NFL linebacker coaches. It makes it sound like I'm attacking the linebacker coach. I don't even really care about that. But it felt like GM Urban Meyer is gonna sink head coach Urban Meyer if head coach Urban Meyer could even make it, and obviously he couldn't. And it's good for the Jaguars. They got out from under this as fast as possible. They didn't get 
another guy in there to take a shot at building a roster around Trevor Lawrence and maybe just only really a few key pieces. Um, but still a lot of cap room, still a lot of resources there. I don't know. Um, I don't know if this was the most predictable thing, but it certainly was a large slice of the probability. Yeah, probably not this quickly, but yes. And also probably best news for the Jags, Allen, is that it looks like they are not going to pay him any Mm. of his remaining contract. So that just saves the organization money. Of course, it really just comes right out of, right? Shotgun's pocket. pocket. It's not like college where you got boosters on the hook. But either way, if you're going to fail with your experiment, you'd want it to be as fast as possible. And one year is basically as fast as possible in the NFL. Clearly the right decision to fire him. And I'd imagine there's going to be a pretty serious house cleaning that goes on. As you mentioned, probably a very different mindset with who they hire for this next coach to guide what you hope to be uh, you know, a future franchise player in Trevor Lawrence, who's had a, a tricky year, uh, but he's going to get a pass on that year because of the coaching he had. So a lot to be seen there. But again, we'll keep an eye on the Urban Meyer story, where he goes, what he does. Uh, but that's a that's a strong fall from grace from him. Yeah, and I want to push back on the narrative that you're a college coach and then you move up to the big leagues of the NFL. I hate this. It's it's such a dumb thing. Um, I don't. The skills are are not overlapping completely. It's not like you're a coach in college and then if you're the best, you move up, right? It's a there's some sense of that in terms of the notoriety and prestige, but if you take the top call our NFL coaches, that does not mean they would be successful in college and vice versa, obviously. Now there's some guys who are so great. They're going to be able to do it, move back and forth, but I don't think it, you know, Bill Simmons is a big offender of this. Maybe this is why I'm talking about, you know, listen to him for a long time, but yeah, uh, I don't think that means that urban Meyer is less of a coach his skill set is almost entirely as a college coach. And there's guys in the NFL I think would be who've been very successful who would fail miserably at the college level. And they have. You've seen that yeah. throughout history. And yeah, it's not minor league baseball. You're not playing the same game on the same baseball diamond moving up to the bigs. It is a different game and game meaning the skills you need. And that's a correct observation. Some guys have both sets of skills where they can do it in both leagues. And most guys do not. And I agree that one is not necessarily better than the other one, Alan. And also by definition, college coaches do not have to be on average as tactical as an NFL coach would have to be because those are the, the differences between each team are tiny. So, you know, the best coaches get that little extra difference out, but make no mistake about it. The skill sets are very, very different. And again, all you have to do is look at how many NFL coaches have not succeeded coaching in college football at even a moderate level to let you know that it does not, it is not as Bill Simmons is saying the minor leagues for the big leagues in the NFL, as far as coaching gigs go. Okay. Let's talk about tick pick. If you're trying to go to a game this holiday season, well, check out tick pick. That's T I C K P I C K. The original no fee ticket site. And the only one you'll ever need is your go-to for all tickets for NCAA football, NFL, concerts, NBA, and more. TickPick guarantees the best prices on all of their college football tickets. If you can find better prices for the same seats on another site, TickPick will give you 110% of the difference in, their, in the purchase price. So visit TickPick today at TickPick.com 
slash gators. That's tickpick.com slash gators. Great job there, Alan. Always love you with the live reads. <laughs> All right, here's one for the Cade Museum. We've talked about it each and every week. Cade Museum for innovation. I mentioned how much I love innovation. The My entrepreneurial self thrives on learning and failing and growing and trying new things. And the Cade's a great, a great place to go check out all sorts of fun stuff, especially for the family or for your friends. So if you find yourself in town, use our promo code GATORNATION to get a buy one, get one free, either at the desk or online at the Cade Museum, which is thecademuseum.org. Alan, Coaching Corner, there's two that involve the Patriots. The Patriots played a game battling for the top spot in the AFC I think the Pats, the Pats are pretty fraudulent this year. I think a lot of the NFL scheduling has been weird. My own Miami Dolphins have basically played nobody and have won six games in a row outside of one good yeah, win I think against it's the Ravens. Flat. Yeah, and the Pats are fine, but it's kind of if you're playing those bottom teams, you can accumulate wins until you play an actual good team. And the Colts are actually good this year, Alan. But most importantly, Bill Belichick, a guy who obviously is maybe the greatest coach of all time, I think made some mistakes in this one. There's nine minutes left to go in the game and the Pats are down 13. It's fourth and goal at the Colts seven. Now, at this point in time, if it's the first quarter, you kick a field goal. The math there would be different. The EV of that is different because fourth and seven is hard to get in the NFL. In this case, though, with nine minutes left, he chooses to kick the field goal, which drops his win probability from 10% to 5%. I mean, immediately your chances of winning are much lower. Why? This follows my beloved rule of scores. By going from 13 to 10, you're still down two scores. You're not improving anything. What Belichick would tell me, and he would tell everyone else here, is it's going to be dependent upon game flow and how well their defense is playing against the Colts and what he thought the Colts might do, that he thought he was going to get the ball three times, essentially, and have to score all three times. Or I would tell you, make the positive EV play there and go for it on fourth and seven and attempt to make that score, even with a guy who you don't necessarily trust in Mac Jones and you're trying to play a different game plan. Your thoughts on not going for it on fourth and goal from the seven, knowing it's going to drop your EV and win probability when you're down 13. I think it's surprising. I would agree with everything you said there. I don't really find a path forward for choosing the field goal in in that scenario outside some very specific things that I wouldn't be privy to outside Bill Belichick's mind. Now, I would leave open the chance for him to convince me otherwise, but yeah, that that one feels like a miscalculation by him. Yeah, I think so. Now, with all that being said, they find themselves down three mm-hmm. with 220 left. Now, they could easily be up one. That's the difference, right, had they gone for it. But they're down three with 220 left, and they only have one timeout. So essentially, you have a timeout, and you can stop it at the two-minute warning, and you can give yourself the ball back with, let's say, a minute or so. The question is, would it be ideal to kick an onside kick here to give yourself two ways to get the ball back, essentially? You're still going to have to stop them either way. And if you do stop them immediately, they may not even make that field goal from there. So no harm, no foul. What are your thoughts on kicking an onside kick here versus kicking it away down three? Yeah. In the NFL, I don't love the onside kick there because of the efficacy of the field goal kickers from that distance that you might, you know, end up being down six, right? Which is a significant change there because you could tie the game with a field goal, obviously. So I probably wouldn't onside kick there, although I would understand the logic of it. 
Yeah, this is really tricky. But again, if you do the math, I, I think it's it's. I'm going to make this up, but if they gain five yards on average over their three downs, that's like a 53 yarder. I think they have to kick, which for an NFL kicker is like 60 percent make. So if you look at the EV of that, now you're down a touchdown with no timeouts and a minute left, and your chance of scoring a touchdown in that situation drops like a rock. Whereas getting a field goal, if you stop them, and you're going to have a minute left, is actually pretty high. It's a coin flip if you're a good team in the two-minute drill. So I think in that case, and again, I'm I'm spitballing the math here. You can find the math in this exact situation out there. I think in that case, you're going to have to love your onside kick. Do you have some spectacular play even running in practice that's been working? Because otherwise, you don't want to go down six. And the benefit you get by kicking the onside kick is that you might get it, but you're going to get that nowadays in the NFL, you know, four or five times out of 100. And you're going to give up the chance of going down six, six times out of 10 or 60 times out of 100. That seems like a bad trade-off. So I think here in the modern NFL, until they change the onside kick rule, I would also kick that away. Hope I get a stop and get the ball back on my own 30 or 35, only needing to go 30 or 35 yards myself to tie the game. I have one of the best kickers in the league. I think that's what Belichick did there. I'm okay with that one. So again, he could have been winning though. Fourth and seven conversion. He could have been up one in that situation kicking off. They were not. They wind up losing. All right. The Chargers are doing some very interesting stuff. We've been waiting for this, Alan. We've been talking about it. How long is football going to take before it gets into the baseball analytical mindset? It seems like it's happening. The Chargers played an absolutely downright manically wild game against the Chiefs in which they went for it on every fourth down in the red zone. They also went for it not in the red zone on fourth down. And the Chiefs went for it in the red zone one time on fourth down. All of this to end up in a tie and then an overtime game where the Chiefs got the ball first, drove down, scored a touchdown, ended the game. Another NFL rule that I hate that you don't get a chance to rebut. But... Do you like this from the Chargers? The first one was fourth down and five. So it's fourth and goal from the five. The second was fourth and goal from the two. The third was fourth and two from the 28. And the Chargers also fumbled the ball on the one yard line at one point in time on second down. This is a game the Chargers should have won in all reality. And they would have won if they just kicked field goals. Do you like the Chargers being committed and doubling down after the game saying, look, I know basically what the expected value is of those decisions. So does my team. We're going to be this kind of team. Do you like that? Or I do, do you like feel that. like there was some middle ground there? I like it a lot. And it's funny because I think it's spread a lot of like analytics conversation in NFL circles, which I've largely stayed away from this past week. Um, people kind of flipping sides and, you know, wanting their cake and eating it too, kind of a thing. But if that's the way you want to manage your team and you set the expectations for it, you said this well, that I think they're fine with the risk. If they know the risk reward and they understand your principles, I think they'd be okay with it. And we just didn't convert, right? You got to get out there and make the plays too, right? You're not doing stupid things. You're, you're doing logical things that have better outcomes. And as long as your team understands that, I think it's good. And again, you don't you're not a slave to it. Right? You don't have to do it. Like we have our four string quarterback in here right now. And he can barely it's not even a quarterback. He's our wide receiver. So you don't do it. Right? Again, there are there are ways around this, but as long unless they're doing something that is blatantly stupid in the moment, I love it. 
I like it a lot because it makes so much sense expected value-wise. Let's just look at the two goal line situations for a simple example of this, right? Fourth and one from the goal line, fourth and five from the goal line. If you go forward on both of those and you get it roughly, let's say 50% of the time I'm making up a number, it's not actually 50%, then that means on average you get seven points. If you kick the field goal both times, you're going to get six points. You can't get seven points. You can only get six points. So you only have to hit on one out of two. And if you like, again, this is all game situation. Do you like your quarterback? Do you like your matchups? Do you like how they're defending you? Do the look that you have? That number could go up to 70% of converting, or it could go way down to like 10%. And that's where coaching comes into play, right? This is where play calling comes into play. This is where understanding the game, what your what your opponent's going to do, all the game theory stuff. How will they defend me on fourth and one? Those are the things that matter. On top of that, if your team has been told and they're buying into your culture, hey, we're going to try to go for the max EV right? That's our goal. And they're bought in the, the emotional, like crushing blow does not occur because you know, you're going to go for it. So if you don't get it on fourth and five, you don't walk off the field feeling like, Oh my gosh, we give up three points. You go off the field saying, this is our identity. We're okay. It's fine. It's no big deal. Right. And your defense is not like, Oh man, we gave up points. It's your identity. Now, assuming all those things are being communicated clearly and everyone's bought in, I love it because it is the higher EV way to go. Yes, they would have won this isolated game most likely just kicking field goals. But even then, football is very dynamic. Had they scored some of those touchdowns, it may have changed what the Chiefs would have done in a game where the Chiefs were also scoring. So you can't just look at it in a vacuum, but you should look at it from that EV lens, which would tell you you are going to average more points per possession if you do that which makes it, in my mind, Alan, a no-brainer, assuming, again, you like your personnel versus their personnel, you have good looks versus their looks, that's when you should be doing it, right? Sometimes you got to kick field goals, especially if you have a quarterback you don't trust or you've got some issues with your O-line or whatever it may be. So you can't just definitively answer it. But I like what the Chargers did. I liked even better how they defended it. And I think you're going to continue to see coaches do this now because the NFL is the last place it will happen. But as it starts to happen, and listen, let's let's not sleep on this. Let's say the Chargers win a playoff game this year because they do a a positive EV game plan. That is when people will take notice. So far, a lot of times, this is what happens. The guys who put themselves out there on the positive EV plays, they have not been winning. And the coaches are like, see, I told you, you can't do that. It's killing momentum or it's killing whatever. Uh, So time will tell. But right now, I do like it a lot. And I think their defensive, it was solid. And I thought it was well thought out. And it's a story to follow. So keep an eye on the Chargers and other teams in the NFL as we move along this postseason. Alan, some news from the college football world? Yeah. The legend himself, Bo Nix, Bonix himself, goes to Oregon. That's surprising to you? Uh, Surprising to me. I'm surprised. A little bit. You know, there are some connections there. So his offensive coordinator from his freshman year, Kenny Dillingham, is now the OC at Oregon. Dan Lanning of course, had a close-up view of him for a couple of years, right? So they knew they were getting in him a little bit, and they liked him enough. So I think that bodes well for it working out. This isn't just a total flyer. They have some experience of the guy, and they liked him enough they wanted to bring him in. Now, maybe they just like him as an insurance, and this is the best offer he got. I don't know. Um, but it it's funny. You don't – I don't know. You, these kind of guys who've played a lot at one program switching used to be very rare. And I think it's going to be much more normal moving forward. 
Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. I just don't like this stuff. You know, I hate to see these guys come out and talk about how Auburn's always my home or Florida's always my home. I'll always be a Gator, always be a Tiger, always be whatever. Loved it here. Next chapter. It just feels so wrong when it's your alma mater. And I get you can do this. I can go to Florida and go to grad school anywhere I want. It doesn't negate what I did at Florida, right? A lot of these guys have even graduated from their schools. But in the perfect world, you prefer it didn't happen. But I think you hit the nail on the head. Most of these transfers, much like Spencer Rattler, they go to where they have relationships, right? Rattler had a relationship with Beamer because Beamer was at Oklahoma. And you just mentioned here with Oregon. So oftentimes it's not what it seems to be like, oh, they chose the program. No, they're choosing the person that they know, or perhaps the OC that tells them, hey, I'm going to play you. You're going to win a starting job here as long as this happens. You're fine. You're in. I trust you. I know you. And that makes a lot of sense. That's part of a veteran mindset is choosing a place where they already know you because you have a better chance of them playing you because they're invested in you. They've seen you. They like you and they've already seen you. So that makes sense. We'll see how it works out for Bo Nix. I think this one feels weird because there was a coaching change, but it was last year and there's no like incoming five star or something where you assume I'm going to lose my job here. Maybe he wouldn't have been the starter. Maybe they've communicated that to them. But there, there's times where a guy, even if you played three years where the, there's a coaching change and they're switching offenses that, hey, I'm going from, you know, Mike Leach to Greg, or, you know, Malzahn. And you're like, I, I got to go because I can't do the things Malzahn wants me to do or vice versa. But this one felt a little weird considering he's, you know, a legacy person there and has played for three years. So this might be just normative or it might still feel weird five years from now because of the circumstances. Something else happens like this. We'll see. Who knows? Should have had a win against Alabama. Had some of his best games of his career playing this year. Yeah. And also had some really low games, which is a classic Bonix move. All right. It's time for a bet us live read sports betting season is well underway. As we mentioned, the holiday season is a great time to join BetUS as one of the world's oldest online sports books. To sign up, visit BetUS.com and use our promo code GNATION125 to get a big fat sign up bonus. 125% of what you put in will be given to you as a gift from BetUS. If you want to use your crypto, you can too. Use the code GNATION200. And if you use either one of those codes, Alan, you are essentially supporting the show as you are giving us a hundo bomb each time you sign up. So we appreciate that greatly. So visit our title sponsor, betus.com, and sign up today. Alan, catch us up to date on what's happened through the nine bowls that have already occurred this bowl season. For sure. Some fun ones already in the books here. Middle Tennessee beats Toledo. Surprise? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, I'm surprised. <laughs> we both picked Toledo. Uh, but they went 31-24. So both of us on the wrong end of that one there. In the Tail Greeter Cure Bowl, Northern Illinois covers against Coastal Carolina. You picked that one up. Coastal Carolina does get the win, but doesn't cover that 10.5-point spread. Northern Illinois was on the one-yard line. I don't know if you saw this game I finished. I did not. Oh, man. They are very unhappy, and rightfully so. Basically, the officials oh, yes. messed up. Yeah, I read about they this. They stood yeah. over the center. They did not let Northern Illinois snap the ball, although they should have. 
the game ends, despite the protesting, despite the fact that they needed to get back out there and give them time, they did not. And the game just ended that way. It should never have ended that way. They were down six. They should have gotten one more play to try to score a touchdown. They didn't get it. Total absurd scenario. And it's a bowl game, which is why you're not going to hear too many people care too much about it. But that was egregious. Tough loss for the Salukis, but they do cover. And the Booker Tom Bell, Western Kentucky, man, puts it on Appalachian State, 59-38. Yeah, somebody twi- uh, tweeted, tweeted, somebody tweeted to us, Alan, that we would love the play. And I went back and watched it because I didn't see it, which is uh, the running back runs for like an 80-yard touchdown and, of course, has a classic sprinter finish into the end zone, which I love. And you Western, do love it. Western Kentucky was definitely the better the better team on this day. Yeah, they they looked good. They're... Transfer quarterback, transfer everybody, really, you know, started to come on at the end of the year, and they they beat a good Appalachian State team there. All right, the Cricket Celebration Bowl, Neon, Dion, and Jackson State get humbled a little bit by what had been a very mediocre South Carolina State team, thirty-one to ten. Yeah, they got cranked. South Carolina State was seven and five coming mm-hmm. into this game. Jackson State eleven and one, and they got hammered. Uh, does it affect Jackson State moving forward? No, it's a bowl game, but not a fun way to to end sort of your best. Yeah, we don't ever history. really pick. I I can't really say what I thought of this. They're coming from different conferences, but this is really surprising, other than just the record next to them. But I think most of the sports world, because Jackson State has been in the headlines, were like, "Huh?" But there you go. All right, the old PUBG Mobile New Mexico Bowl, UTEP. Covers good job, UTEP versus Fresno State 24 31. Yeah, Fresno State finishes off a nice season. Yeah, they don't they don't get the cover here, but they do get a win and a good season for them. And obviously, new coach Jeff Tedford coming in next year, a name you may remember as he used to coach Cal, was kind of the hot coach for a while, faded mm-hmm. out, faded off, is now back in for Fresno State in 2022. Okay, at the Independence Bowl, UAB, BYU. UAB, a little bit of a shocker here. They win 31-28. It's been a very tough bowling season for the favorites. If you've been noting this, most of the favorites have had a tough go of it, which is why what we talk about is I would not bet a single dollar on any bowl games anymore because you just have no idea who's going to win or who wants it more, who is showing up. And I think this early season has proven that, except for this next team, Alan, who took care of business quite handily. Liberty. Just crushes Eastern Michigan 56 to 20 in the old Linden Tree Bowl that we all love to watch every year. But there you go. Any Hugh thoughts Freeze. on this? Hugh yeah. Freeze gets it done. His bowl Freeze record is like stellar. I think he's five and one now in bowls. So he must have something in his prep that works. All right. I love this. The Jimmy Kimmel LA Bowl. Utah State. Wins 24-13 over Oregon State. That's a really good win for them. It's a great win. I have to feel like this is the case of a school like Utah State. This means something. Mm -hmm. It's a West Coast opponent from a bigger conference. You want to play them, get the dubs. I mean, I don't know if that's for sure the case, but that that they they handily won this one. It was a good win for them, and they finished the year strong, winning their conference and then winning that one. And the New Orleans Bowl, R plus L Carriers New Orleans Bowl. Louisiana does get the win over Marshall. 36-21. 36-21. Yeah, we thought, you and I both picked him, we thought that... You were more uh, confident than me, but... Yeah, I thought there's a system there. I think they've built something there, and I think it's a proof to Napier, and a good win, and a great way to finish out for Louisiana. That means, Alan, you and I both went four and five in our bowl picks thus far. Respectable. There's plenty of bowls left 
We're basically flipping coins, including Florida's bowl game in the Union Home Mortgage Gasparilla Bowl versus UCF on Thursday evening, Alan. Last time we talked, Emory Jones had not transferred. He's still transferring. He's still playing. Do you have any new thoughts on the bowl game as it awaits us this week now that it's right upon us? Not really. Um, I really do wish Richardson was playing in this game. I think it would be really fun. I mean, I'm going to watch it, I guess, <laughs> uh, because I need to probably, but uh, very little intrigue. I think otherwise, you know, if, you, if you're catching UCF on a – up year, which has not really been an up year for them, and Florida in kind of a pseudo okay year. This could be a really fun matchup. I think there will be eyeballs on it because of the past couple of years there's been some friction between Florida and UCF, but I don't know. I mean, the, the team did play hard against FSU with a bowl season on the, time, on the a bowl game on the line. They showed up and played well. And so I do think there's a chance they'll show up and play well in this game, but I don't have a lot of confidence in that necessarily. Yeah. They got the right opponent in a UCF team that none of these guys want to lose to. They're all well aware of the That's same UCF, UCF jokes that you and your friends make. So there is added bonus there. Uh, but obviously with Emory Jones, like we talked about at the quarterback helm, Florida's capable of losing to many a team. That's not going to change. Um, we'll see what happens. You better believe UCF wants this more than anything. The best thing for all of us as Florida fans is this. It doesn't matter because Napier is not coaching the game. He's building his own influence outside the pro. It literally doesn't matter. It's You can't write a single thing about it that means anything. And that's a great thing for Florida's brand is sometimes bowl games can hurt your brand. We talk about True. this. Despite the fact that I say they don't matter, they can negatively affect you. They can cause a little bit of uh, wind to be taken out of your sails, but not in this case. This game is inconsequential. However, I still don't want to lose to UCF. Because you don't want to lose to those guys. So hopefully we don't lose. Hopefully we win in some ugly fashion or beautiful fashion. I don't really care. Just win on the scoreboard. So watch for that one on Thursday. Okay. Well, real quick. A little special thing here. We both picked UCF. We did. To at least cover. Yes. And give you an out here. Do you want to change your pick? I do not. Do you want to change your pick? I do not either. Okay. <laughs> We're staying right where we are. Okay. okay. Fair enough. All right. Upcoming, uh, that breakdown of Tony's defense will be upcoming. I have watched a lot of his teaching videos, and I have to say that I feel like he is a very good football teacher. He's an excellent communicator. Uh, what he's breaking down is correct. A lot of the stuff you've seen on my film breakdown, especially when it relates to corners and things I've seen online from him. Uh, but he is a fantastic teacher. We'll see what he's like as an overall coordinator at this level. But again, just to double down on that, I will release the film breakdown. You will see what I think about his strategies and tactics. But so far, so good. I think he's got a great command of tactical football. So that's nice, given that I've said on record many times, Grantham did not. He had just absolutely no command of tactical football. So we shall see. And Alan, I want to say thank you to all of you that have watched our YouTube film channel as Napier's breakdown on his offense. That's our most watched video ever. Today we surpassed. That's cool. Today we surpassed more than thirteen thousand five hundred views on that video, uh, which in the world of film breakdowns is quite a lot. For yeah, college great job football. by you on that for sure. So that's really awesome. I want to thank you guys for watching it uh, again. That's why we do this podcast and the film breakdown. If nobody watched it, I wouldn't do it. I don't do it for myself. So thanks for watching. I'm glad you guys are enjoying the content. As always, send us the feedback. We totally tailor the show and the YouTube channel to what you guys and girls are interested in. 
Alan, any other comments here before we close? Nope, not by me. All right, that's it. We'll have a wonderful holiday season. A Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, a Happy Kwanzaa, a Happy whatever holiday you may be celebrating. Alan and I, it'll be Christmas. Hopefully you get some cold weather. We know you guys are all over the country. Get some snow maybe. We won't be getting that down here in Florida, mm. Alan, but hopefully you do. I've always wanted a white Christmas, never had one. So hopefully you'll have one. We will see you in the new year. Can't say exactly when yet, but we will be back relatively soon into January. We have loved providing this show to you in 2021. We hope that you have enjoyed each and every episode, and we will see you in 2022. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.